Life can harden you. It can dull you. It can knock you off balance. Uh, it can make you insensitive. It can make you jaded about people. It can, it can lead you to distrust. And we, we can all, at any point in our lives, based on one phone call, one event, one circumstance, be totally knocked out of alignment. And, and all of a sudden, the wheels are wobbling and the, the steering wheel doesn't work and the brakes seem crazy and, and we don't know what's going on. And if you're not careful in those moments, you'll ask the question, where's God? Where's God in all this? And so as I began to think about wrapping up this series on emotional stability and how to restore stability, I want to take you back for about 30 seconds and remind you about the second message in this series, which had to do with taking a Sabbath rest and getting your life in rhythm and in balance and not go, go, go all the time and to the point where you're exhausted and you don't know up from down. And then you make bad decisions. Because life does that to us. It just does. It's the reality. I mean, we live in a fallen world. We are sinners saved by grace. And if we're not careful, we will become so unstable in our thinking that we don't hear God in what he's trying to say to us. So let me talk about some causes, just two or three causes for, for becoming unstable emotionally and, and what happens to, and I'm talking about good people. I'm not talking about people that are having to go sit in counseling. I'm just talking about average Joe Blow, average Sister Sue, whoever you are, just the average person, how you and I can get knocked off balance. Number one. By neglecting our personal time with God. By neglecting our personal time with God. We just get busy. And we hit the snooze button and we sleep a little longer and, and we just neglect the personal time. A lot of people call it a quiet time. Here's, here's why I think it's a quiet time. It's where you quiet your heart so you can listen to God. Not so much of what you have to say to God as what he has to say to you. You know, if, if, there, if he's not speaking and you're doing all the speaking, there's no conversation going on between you and the Father. You, you're just having a one-sided instructive, now Lord, here's what's going on, and I need you to know that. What, you need to listen to what he has to say to you. Neglecting our personal time with God. It's easy. It happens. Happens to all of us. But when that happens, the longer we stay that way, the more our lives get out of rhythm. Secondly, when worship takes second place to weekends, when other things, good things, e even family stuff, when, when, when worship is no longer our priority and just getting to the weekend is our priority, when we live for Friday instead of living for Sunday. Friday's the day Jesus died. Sunday's the day he rose. 
And the reason that we get out of balance and the reason we become unstable sometimes in our thinking and in our hearts is because we, we live as if Jesus is dead. And so we soothe ourselves with the things that this world will give us for 24 or 48 hours. And then we go right back into that deadness of feelings and heart. And so we, we let worship take second place to weekends and, and convenience instead of convictions begin to define and describe our lives. And before you know it, we're planning and plotting and conniving and scheming as to how much can we put on this credit card to make this trip to go there to do this rather than I wonder what God wants to say to me this week. Now you see that begins the minute you leave here because it's in your personal time with the Lord. God is bringing you along trying to get you ready for what he wants to say to you the next time the, the family gathers. So we can let worship take a second place. Idolatry. Idolatry. Now we don't have idols as such in America. We do. We just don't have them like they did in the Old Testament. We don't build uh, gods out of rock and stone, but, but we do have idols. And when Jesus is not Lord of our lives, something or someone will take his place in our lives. That's just the nature of humanity. God has to be something in us. And if he's not everything in us, then something else becomes God with a little g. And it, it could be sports, it could be hobbies, it could be recreation, it could be family, it could be the lure of success, it could be misplaced priorities. But here's an idol that causes us to be unstable. It is when we build altars to a past offense or a past hurt and we keep coming back to that altar and rehearsing that situation over and over and over again and we keep picking at that wound over and over again and everybody we meet we want to talk to them about how this person hurt us and in our favorite song on iTunes is Hey, won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song? And so you meet people like this, don't you? I hope you're not one of these people, but you meet people like this. And Hey, how are you doing? You know, 20 years ago, somebody hurt my feelings, and I've just never gotten over it. And you go, I mean, come on. You know, I, I remember I, I got a situation early in my ministry here, and uh, I mean, it wounded me. And I, then I got angry about it. You ever met a wounded person that gets angry? <laughs> That's what we typically do. We're wounded, we get angry. And we want somebody else to pay for our pain. And so I, you know, and I was just rehearsing it all the time, all the time. I was just, I kept, you know, every time I could, I'd bring it up. And John Hempkin was on the staff at the time, and, and uh, we were coming back from my old office where the old prayer chapel used to sit, and we're coming back from lunch, and I'm in the car, and I'm just, you know, and John's heard this about 38 times from me. And he turns me around, and he grabs me by the shoulders and says, Michael, on behalf of Jesus and everybody, I am sorry. Can we move on? And I said, okay. 
I just needed somebody to acknowledge without saying, yeah, I know how you feel. And then trying to top the testimony, well, I've been hurt worse than you have. And we, we play all those kind of games. I, idols can become the altars where we take our grief and our sorrow and our pain and our hurts and we go and begin to worship our hurts instead of the one that heals our wounded hearts. Unhealthy relationships can become an idol in our lives. Uh, Jobs can become idols in our lives. I love this quote. We worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. Doesn't that describe our lives sometimes? We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. So how do we cure that? How do we get beyond this? How do we move past this kind of mentality where we're worshiping work, working at our play, always trying to be better, always trying to get, you know, new equipment, whatever else. We're always working at making our play, our recreation, our, our hobbies better, and then we end up playing at worship. We just kind of play around the fringes of worship. How do we cure that? Look at these words from 1 Chronicles 16, 25. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O family of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. So, Let's back up a little further from First Chronicles and let's go all the way back to Abraham. Well, let's go further. Let's go to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in a perfect garden, in a perfect environment, and they found something to complain about. God told them they couldn't do something. So they decided, well, we want to be like God. So they ate and they got kicked out of the garden, and we've been out of the garden ever since, and that's why you have worms and bugs in your garden. It's because of Adam and Eve. It's their fault. So then Abraham comes along. God calls Abraham, he's minding his own business in Mesopotamia, and he's, he's here's from God. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation, but here's what you're going to have to do to be a great nation. Don't add on to your house, buy a tent, and start wondering. And I'll tell you where to go. I'll tell you where to stop. I'll tell you where to go, because you're going to be a stranger and a sojourner. And we know Abraham by two things, by where he placed his tent and where he built his altar. So when he would stop, he would build an altar and he would worship God. But there's two instances we know of when he didn't build an altar and he didn't get before God. One was in Egypt when he told his wife to lie to Pharaoh and the other was when he took Hagar and he brought her in as a maidservant and then another, because Hagar's there, Sarah says, you know, I'm really tired of you, Abraham. Why don't you have a child with her? And so he says, okay, she's a pretty good-looking woman. I think I'll just go over here and have a child with her. Didn't have an altar there, and we've been dealing with it ever since. Today, this world is in turmoil because Abraham didn't build an altar. How will your family be affected if you don't build an altar? 
and you make decisions based on how you feel in the moment, not on the altar. So Abraham never settled down. He always wondered. God always blessed him. And he's the father of a great nation, the Jewish people. But then the Jewish people began to forget God. And so God sent them into bondage in Egypt. And they spent hundreds of years there. And they began to cry out. But notice something about bondage in Egypt. There was no altar. There was no tabernacle. There was no temple. Seven days a week they worked and they served a brutal taskmaster. They were enslaved to work. And then they began to cry out on their own for God to deliver them. And so God raised up Moses, and Moses delivered them. When they got into the wilderness, and they were on their way to the promised land, while they were there, they had the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, but they also had a tabernacle, a portable tent, there's actually one in the wilderness, which the North American Mission Board put out there years ago. There's a guide that's there out on your way to a lot on the road down from the Dead Sea. You can go to an exact replica of the tabernacle. And when you walk through the fencing, the first thing you see is an altar. Because at the tabernacle, God wanted his people to understand everything begins at the altar. You get in my presence by coming to the altar for sacrifice, for offerings. And so to get to, for the priest to get to the Holy of Holies and make atonement, the people had to constantly be bringing these sacrifices to the tabernacle. But then when God opened the door for them, they just denied it. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So then they have a tabernacle. David comes to the throne. David wants to build a temple, but David can't build the temple. Listen, David's hands were bloody with battles. And so God said David couldn't build the temple. But his son Solomon did. So they build a temple. It's an incredible thing. When you read the description of the materials in the temple, it would be billions of dollars. Now, you say, well, that's just a waste of money. Not when it's where God dwelt. Because God dwelt in the temple. Now God doesn't dwell in this building. God dwells in us now. But in those days, God dwelt in the temple. But when you get your eyes off the Lord, and when you quit going to the altar, and when you quit worshiping God, what happens is Pharisees start to establish rules to prove how much they love God. And so I follow more rules than you follow, so I love God more than you love God. And so as if the Ten Commandments weren't enough, which none of them could live up to them, the Pharisees start adding hundreds of rules, over 600 rules, and all these little things. You could only walk so far. You could only do so much. You couldn't pick up this on the Sabbath. They made all these rules, and religion was dead. They went through the functions and the plans, they, they checked all the boxes, they did the offerings and the sacrifices. And so when Jesus shows up, the Jewish faith has become by and large dead. In fact, it's so dead that God just didn't say another word for 400 years before Jesus showed up. That's how dead it was. God had nothing to say to his people for 400 years. They still came, they went to the synagogues, they went to the to the tabernacles, to the temple. They went to, did all of that, and God never spoke a word because they didn't listen to the last thing he said. And so Jesus shows up, and he begins to talk about true worship. 
and about how we need to live and about what we need to do in our life with him. And in Acts chapter 7 and verse 46, I'm just going to read it quickly. The Most High does not dwell in houses. This is Stephen before they kill him. By the way, they always kill somebody who tells the truth. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made of human hands. As the prophet says, the heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. So here's Stephen. Jesus says, died, he's risen, he's been ascended, the Spirit has come at Pentecost, and Stephen is preaching to a city full of religion. I mean, they, they know how to check all the boxes. And he says, you're stiff-necked, and you resist the Holy Spirit. Could that ever describe us? God says, move, we don't move. God says, go, we don't go. God says, do, we don't do it. God says, witness, we don't witness. Does that ever describe us that we think, as long as I show up and check the box, I'm okay. My life's good. At least I'm here. And we start asking God to grade us on a curve. Well, he didn't grade the most religious people that have ever lived on the planet on a curve. He's not going to grade us on a curve because we are recipients of the grace of God. And grace doesn't mean we get to act any way we want to. And grace is not a blue-eyed blonde. Grace is what God does for us who don't deserve it, which demands that we worship him with all our life, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. So when we come to church, we don't come to meet God. We bring him with us because his spirit dwells inside of us. So we come with the Lord in us. And as we gather corporately, we worship together. And our worship is significant because the body has gathered in God's house to do God's work. Jesus said it this way, but an hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers, in other words, there are false worshipers. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Tozer said worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. Now look again at what he says. For such people the Father seeks... Now, just let me use my sanctified imagination for a minute. The Father's been driving up and down the streets of Albany and Darty County and Lee County and Terrell County and Worth County looking for a place full of true worshipers. He's passing a lot of places that are worshiping tradition that think they're worshiping, but they don't like anybody that doesn't look like them. He's driving right past those places. Because they're not true worshipers. Oh, they're having church. They're, they're singing hymns and they're listening to sermons, but they're not true worshipers because they're not doing what God said. They're not acting like God told them to act. So I wonder, I wonder if this morning did God stop 
at 2201 Whispering Pines and say, now there's a people. Or did he say, man, I'd love to stop there. But they're just showing up to check a box. Now, they want me to fix all their problems. They want me to heal all their hurts. They want me to take care of all their financial issues. They want me to do things, do things, do things, do things, do things, do things, do things for them. And they show up when it's convenient. But if it's not convenient, they have other things and other gods. But they want me to stop and spend time with them. The Father seeks true worshipers. Now, have, have you ever come to church and not worshipped? I have. I, I've, been in, I've been in churches and didn't worship. It, it's, it's hard for me to visit some places because I'm sitting there thinking like a pastor and I'm going, I wouldn't have done that and I wouldn't have said that and I wouldn't have done that that way. And I think that, that person right there needs to do something else. I mean, that, that, that's not the right person to be at your front door. I'm, you need, and I'm just making a list, man. I'm just going down the list. And then God says, so is this about you or is it about me? It's a good question. Is it about you or is it about him? Paul talked about that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you'd be rooted and grounded in love and be able to comprehend the love of Christ. What is your life rooted in? The song we sang earlier, you know, if it's all stripped away, what is your life rooted in? If you don't have what you have, if you can't do what you can do right now and it all just gets down to you and the Lord, what is your life rooted in? Is it a shallow root that's going to be uprooted by the winds and the storms of life because if it is there will always be instability but when those seasons come what are you rooted in where do you find your strength where do you find your nourishment from from the intimacy with christ from abiding in him because he's the vine we're the branches right john 15 he's the vine we're the branches and the branches bear fruit only as they are attached to the vine and rooted in Christ. Ravi Zacharias said, unless worship regains integrity, both in our personal lives and then in a community of believers, the cries of the heart will never find their rest and God's outstretched hand will not meet ours. So I mentioned earlier about Malachi. I don't think Malachi knew when he wrote the book that it was the last thing God was going to say. But it was the last thing God was going to say for 400 years. Now, all of us have seasons in our lives when we think, God's not speaking to me. I'm not hearing from God. Nothing's making sense. My life is dry. First thing to do is, well, there's two things to do at that point. Number one, are you having a personal time alone with the Lord? And number two, what's the last thing God told you? Because if you're not acting on the last thing God told you, why would he tell you anything else? except to do the last thing he told you. You know, I mean, we all know that. We all had preschoolers. We all know what that means. Go, go make up your bed. Can I have $5? No. Go make up your bed. You see, we don't want to do what God says. We want to just get the blessings of God without obeying God. 
And so Malachi writes this short book. And over and over again in this book, it says, but you say, but you say, Malachi makes an accusation against the people of God, people that are very religious. And it says over and over, but you say, but you say. And so I want you to look at Malachi chapter 1. You ever notice there's always a blank page between the book of Malachi and the gospel of Matthew. Majority of Bibles, you'll find a blank page. It is to indicate to us that for 400 years, God did not say a word to his people because they weren't doing what he told them to do. Malachi 1 and verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? In other words, what he says is the preachers are despising my name. The preachers are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But you say, how have we despised your name? You have presented defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? So let's just look at this and think about the source of our instability emotionally. Number one is when God says something to our hearts and says we're not right, and we argue with him. We argue with him. We can do that in our personal time with the Lord. We can do that listening to a podcast. We can hear a truth in a song. We can do it during a sermon. We can do it during an invitation. And God says, hey, this is the way it is. And we say, well, how could you say that to me? As if we can argue with the Lord. I still like Ethel Waters, great old gospel singer, who said, your arms are too short to box with God. Second thing is when God says we've lost our sense of reverence, and we say, what do you mean? How, how can you say we've lost our sense of reverence? I mean, we're here, we're in church, we sing the songs, we listen to sermons, we fill in the blanks. How, how can you say we've lost our sense of reverence? Well, here's, here's one indicator of it. Everything in our culture is awesome. But God is awesome. So God is awesome, but then that hamburger is awesome. And those cheese fries are awesome. And that food is awesome, and mom's pecan pie is awesome, and that athlete is awesome, and that musician is awesome, and all of a sudden everybody's awesome. Oh yeah, and, and, and you know what? And God's awesome too. Praise the Lord. And somewhere God is saying, so I'm on the same level as cheese fries with you. So that's what I mean. That's it. I mean, boy, you know, we got an awesome running back on our college team. God, you're awesome. So your God is no better than a running back. You see how lightly we treat the Lord? And we despise the sacrifices. So what they're doing is they're finding the worst lamb, maybe lame or diseased, and they would take that and put it on the altar and say, well, Lord... Now, you just better be glad you got something out of me. 
Well, how have we despised it? You bring your lame and then lay your own. He says, try to do that to the government. <laughs> try to give them the things that they don't expect. See how that works for you. Don't we do that? And then we cry out and we pray to God and we call the church and we want to be on the prayer line and we ask that God would send away the demons and the devils that seem to be attacking us and we wonder why the bottom's falling out of our life because we've not given God our best. And only when we give God of our best, our time, our resources, our planning, our schedule, until we take our calendars and lay them before the Lord and say, Lord, anything that's on here that's not helping me be more like Jesus or to show Jesus to a lost world, then I give it to you. Whether you give it back to me or not is your business. But I give it to you. William Temple, a great theologian of a far older age, said, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind by His truth, purifying the imagination by His beauty, opening of the heart to His love, and submission of will to His purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we are capable. So, I want to give you a prescription. My dad was a pharmacist, and I used to know how to read prescriptions, and that was Dr. Scribble, but my dad taught me how to read it. So they'd turn in, somebody'd come to the store, and they'd turn in a prescription, and I'd take it, and my dad said, what is it? And I'd say, well, they need 40 milligrams of this uh, three times a day. So sometimes I'd type the label while he was getting the prescriptions, but I'm the one that read it to him. And then he'd just double-check it just to make sure I didn't misread it. Aren't you glad a nine-year-old wasn't writing your prescriptions? But that's what I did when I was nine years old. I knew how to read. Every doctor in town that came that used our drugstore, I knew how to read their writing, which I can't read it now, but uh, they tell me I'm okay. But uh, I'm going to give you a prescription. It's not going to cost you anything. The way to stabilize your life is to centralize your worship. The way that you stabilize your life is to centralize your worship. Make worship the hub and all the other things you do, your job, your relationships, your time, your money, your energy, let those spokes go out from the hub, but make sure the hub is worship. Because when Christ is at the center of your life and the hub is worship, he will direct you and you won't have imbalance in your life. Can you imagine trying to ride on a wheel that every spoke was a different length and the lengths changed according to where you were and what you were doing? But when Christ is central in your life, then all the spokes equal out and the ride becomes tolerable, bearable, and yes, even smooth. You say, well, you don't know what I'm going through. No, I don't. But I know this. If your worship is centralized, you're going to go through it with a better attitude. 
you can go through it with a better disposition and you're going to go through it with a better witness of who God is and what he can do to bring stability to lives that are in turmoil. Would you pray with me? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. What is it that you need to do to bring balance in your life today? What needs to change about your worship? What adjustments do you need to make today? Not tomorrow, not down the road. What adjustments do you need to make today? What is it that you need to say no to? What is it that you need to die to? What altar to something in the past do you need to tear down and take a fresh new trip to the cross and to the empty tomb? What is it? For each one of us, it's different. But for each one of us, it's personal. And if we want to be stable in our faith and in our salvation and our sanctification, if we want to be stable in that, then we've got to centralize worship. Not just something we do one hour on Sunday, but something we live out. And that what we live out in our daily life with the Lord and as He teaches us, as we read His Word, as we pray, as He builds up in us anticipation for what he's going to say to us when we gather together with other believers. That's when body life is healthy. When what's going on in us personally is worship so that when we gather with other worshipers, there's joy in the house of the Lord. That will bring stability. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, as your personal Lord and Savior. And before you leave this place, I hope that you'll find it. You can turn to anybody, and I guarantee you, if they don't know how to tell you, they know somebody that knows how to tell you how you can have a personal relationship with Christ. Or you can find us out at the welcome desk in just a few minutes and say, I need to trust Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. You'll never stabilize your life without a Savior. And nothing can save you but Jesus. He's the friend of a wounded heart. He heals your scars. He wipes away your tears. He fills your empty heart with joy and with gladness. He does for you what you cannot do for yourself. He comes in he moves in and He touches your heart and makes you whole. Doesn't always mean the problem goes away. Doesn't always mean the pain goes away. But in the midst of the problem and the pain, there's a presence of Jesus that can calm your heart the way nothing and nobody else can. Don't miss that today. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who died to save us, who 
who sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to guide us into all truth, to comfort us, to give us peace and joy and, and kindness for all that your Spirit wants to do inside of us today. May we give you free reign to speak to our innermost being, that deepest part of our life that we're scared to unfold because we're scared that somebody would think badly of us. But Lord, we need stability in very unstable times. We need it mentally and we need it emotionally and we need it spiritually. And so I pray that as a people, we will be people where Jesus is at the center, where worship centralizes our focus of our lives. For we pray it in the name of Jesus. God's people said, Amen.